So I've got to make sure I take this music stand back after I'm finished with it. I never eat at Scum, hardly ever when I'm speaking, but today, since we had so much pizza left over, I had too many slices, so now I'm feeling full, and I'd like to just say a prayer, take a nap, and go home. Okay, so, the unforgivable sin. I know people who have thought they committed the unforgivable sin, and um, usually it went something like this. They were Christians who um, maybe did some backsliding for a while, which they then thought was impossible to come back from. So they were really, really worried that they had committed the unforgivable sin by turning against Jesus for a while, you know, to wine women's song, men, various things like that. But honestly, I think if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't committed it, okay? Um... Somebody turn these heaters off, please, just for while I'm speaking. That'd be great. Thank you. That low whining sound. The feeling like I'm standing next to a radiator. Um, You know, when I was in the charismatic circles, there were people all the time that felt they had committed the unforgivable sin because... You know, they spoke in the wrong kind of tongues or something. They didn't quite have the gift. They didn't have the spirit, so they must have sinned because they didn't have the gift of tongues. Let me just put that to rest. Um, Tongues are not necessary as a sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift, just like all the other gifts, and some people get it and some people don't. So if you don't speak in tongues, you still have the Holy Spirit, and you have not, by some chance, committed the unforgivable sin. (laughs) I thought I had done it once, actually, uh, when I was in the charismatic church, and I faked being slain in the Spirit. (laughs) I, uh, I was just trying to be polite, you know, to the people who were conducting the meeting. Um, and besides, you know, being a firstborn and wanting to please people, uh, like I have done in those kind of situations, um, I also honestly just really, really wanted to be open as I possibly could to being slain in the Spirit, since that seemed to be the, you know, gift du jour. And uh, so I just, you know, kept leaning until I finally tipped. You know, they had catchers, you know, to catch you, because everybody expected people to fall, which is why I fell. And so I was worried for a while, well, you know, Mike, are you kind of faking the Holy Spirit? Think you can fake the Holy Spirit out? Really? Remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit? I mean... But I don't think Ananias and Sapphira committed the unforgivable sin. I think we'll see him in heaven. Um, I also um, 
don't think that faking being slain in the spirit is the unforgivable sin. And then there's a bunch of people I've met who left the church when they were young and uh, haven't come back still and feel like maybe they've committed the unforgivable sin. So we're going to talk about that tonight. I'd like to turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's where we are, chapter 3, starting in verse 20. If you look up at the screen, there'll be the Gospel. We're going to stop as we go along here, okay? We're going to be really heavy on the Bible study tonight because this is such a touchy subject, this whole unforgivable sin business. One time, Jesus entered a house... And the crowds began to gather again. Now we've seen this happen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus gains notoriety. People start coming in from all over the place. And wherever he goes, there's a crowd. Combination of, you know, guru, rock star, healer. It's kind of a great combination. And people keep coming to him. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Now I'm thinking this really ticked his mom off because she wanted to make sure Jesus got time to eat, being a good Jewish mom. And so, verse 21, when his family heard what was happening They tried to take him away. This other scripture says they went to seize him forcibly. That's what the force of the Greek, actually. They went to seize him forcibly and take him away. He's out of his mind, they said, or he's beside himself, they would say. He's mad. He's lost it. This... Rock stardom has gone to his head. He's not even finding time to eat. And so Mary, we find out later, and her other sons by Joseph come to take Jesus away. Now, I think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is probably the most awesome woman in all of Scripture. I really do. I think she's worthy of honor and respect. I think that Protestants don't give her the due that she really rightly should get. But on the other hand, there are those in the church who give her more than she's due. She was just a human woman. In this case, thinking that her son Jesus is out of his mind and going with his half-brothers to take him away. Now, Jesus was the son of Mary by the Holy Spirit. We all know that from the Christmas story. The others, I'm assuming, are his brothers by Joseph. So they're half-brothers. This is how the story starts. This is the Gospel of Mark. Most people think that it's the actual Gospel of 
the Apostle Peter as recited to Mark, and then Mark wrote it down. Mark being John Mark, one of the characters we see elsewhere in the Gospels. Now, it's kind of a sandwich, this passage. It starts with family. You know, that's the bun here. It ends with family. And in the middle, we have the religious leaders and rulers. So let's go on to the middle of the sandwich. But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So not only, as Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 10, that a person's foes may be those of his own household, now he's got the religious authorities on his ass again, and now they've come up with a new label to try and explain this whole Jesus phenomenon, and that is, okay, we know this guy's casting out demons. We cannot refute that. Okay, but he's not part of the club. He's not accredited by our rabbinical school. He doesn't have any degrees. He's this carpenter from Nazareth, from the sticks. We don't trust him. So since we know he can't be real, he can't be legit, where does he get this power from? Because we can't dispute the fact that he's got power. Well, they'll say, okay, well, then he's got the power from the prince of demons. In the Hebrew, they use the word Beelzebub, literally meaning Lord of the Flies. Just thought you'd like to know that. And that probably came as a slur from Jews talking about some pagan religions and their demonic forces. Now, Jesus does not respond with labels. These guys are labeling him. If you've noticed, if you want to make somebody less than human, if you want to really do somebody some harm, then you just got to stop calling them human and start labeling them as something else. Because once you label them as something else, then you can do whatever you want to to them, and it doesn't look like you're being evil yourself. It actually looks like you're saving people, see? So the Nazis could call the Jews dogs, you know, animals, things like that, subhuman before they exterminated them. This is the way the world works. The interesting thing to me here, if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Mark so far, the religious leaders are calling Jesus a Satan, basically, a devil, Beelzebub. Okay, what are the demons saying about Jesus? We know who you are. You're the son of the Most High God. This is irony right here in the Gospel. The devils are saying the truth. And the religious leaders are telling the lies. All right. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan drive out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by a civil war will collapse. 
Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Abraham Lincoln used this quote when talking about the Civil War that our nation was involved in, that a a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is where he got it from. But, of course, Jesus was using it in terms of the kingdom of darkness. I don't think Jesus was casting any aspersions on the U.S. government at this point or the country that we all live in. But rather, Abraham Lincoln was saying, it's impossible. The U.S. will not continue. We will fall if we cannot stand together. And so Jesus, instead of labeling them back like they were labeling him, which he could very well have done, he instead employs logic, which I think is very kind in his response. Verse 27, let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. In the NIV, Jesus is talking about a robber. He says, how can a robber come in and take things from a strong man's house unless he first ties a strong man up and carts away his goods? And in, in, in the illustration, Jesus is saying, I'm the robber. All right? I'm stronger than the strong man. you got to look at this whole earthly scenario as some kind of giant military operation from heaven come to free the earth. If you look at it that way, then you understand what's going on here. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, of everything visible and invisible, looks down on the people and the earth he's created and says, oh my gosh, what a mess they've got themselves in. They handed the world over to Satan back in the Garden of Eden, and now they're all trapped. They're all prisoners of war. They're like those Jews in those Nazi concentration camps back in World War II. And he's saying, I've got to do something. And so he starts with Jesus to literally invade the earth. That's why we have all those angels, the hosts of heaven, around the birth of Jesus is because a spiritual battle has been joined. Remember, Herod was trying to kill Jesus, and he killed all little boys in Bethlehem. We did that during Advent. Remember, we talked about that. This a spiritual battle that has implications in the physical world. And so now that little baby that Herod tried to kill or actually that Satan tried to kill through Herod, is now full-grown and is starting his offensive. And he is liberating the prisoners of war. He comes upon somebody who's been captured by demons, and he says, the name of, he says, leave the man. And the demon has to leave. You see, Satan's house is being robbed of his prized possessions, these humans that he's captured. And so Jesus is illustrating this to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is what's going on. I've tied up Satan. I've bound him. I'm stronger than him, and I am setting the captives free like you heard about back through the prophet Isaiah. 
I just love that. Let me illustrate. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. And then he says this to those teachers of the law. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, he's possessed by an evil spirit. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are looking at God in the face and calling him evil. They're they're looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing, and they're saying, this is not the Holy Spirit. Do you ever try to talk to somebody who believes in conspiracy theories about the truth? Do you ever, I mean, maybe you know people who believe that, you know, there's this giant organization worldwide that's electing presidents, and it's, you know, it's um, got all government power in every country of the world. And you're trying to, <laughs> you know, and you, no matter what fact you tell them, they can incorporate it into their theory about how the conspiracy really is real. It's kind of like that with these Pharisees. Jesus is telling them the truth, and they can't hear it. It's like, how do you get back to the truth when you look God in the face and you call him the devil? Like, what can you do? This is what Jesus is saying is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is when you look at what God is doing and you call it evil. It's like trying to argue with a drunk guy. It just doesn't make any sense after a while. I don't know what it is about preachers and churches and drunk guys, but I'm always being argued with over fine points of theology. I don't even care about these points of theology but they mean a lot to the drunk person I'm talking to, and I can be drawn into an interminable argument that never goes anywhere. And so I've learned, after being in Capitol Hill for 15 years, (laughs) never to argue theology with drunk people. Because it's kind of like this, right here. It's like Jesus arguing with the Pharisees. And Jesus isn't talking about a one-time-only incident that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit once and then you're done. Sorry, it's history. There's no coming back. It's a continual state of denying the truth. I mean, there really only is one unforgivable sin that I can find in all of Scripture. And when you've got a question like this, you need to go look not just at the passage, but what does the rest of Scripture say about it? 
I mean, the only unforgivable sin I can really find throughout Scripture is denying God as he's expressed himself in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said that the gates of heaven, I'm sorry, he said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. If you remember the last battle, the seventh book in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's these dwarves, and they're in this hut, and they will not come out and see Aslan. They don't believe there's an Aslan. They don't believe anything. They're, they're literally in the middle of paradise in this hut, and they will not come out. They just will not come out. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. That God gives us all a choice. And all who are in hell choose it. The same as all who are God's choose Jesus. Notice the little couple here. In verse 28, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. That's the first part of the statement. That's the good news. Every sin you've ever committed can be forgiven. Every blasphemy you've ever uttered from your mouth against God, against your parents, against the church can be forgiven. It's not a problem for God. You can move from the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to being forgiven. Just kind of turn one day. It's possible. There's, everybody, wants, everybody wants to concentrate on verse 29, but verse 28 is the gospel. All right. Interesting. When you would think of the list of unforgivable sins, wouldn't you put maybe other things at the top of your list? Like rape of children? Murder of innocents? Lying to people who are doing good for you. But all those kinds of things are forgivable. It's incredible. The love of God for a decrepit humanity like us. Verse 31. Then Jesus, this is the other part of the sandwich, this is the other piece of bread, okay? Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers and sisters. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This, I'm sure, once word got out to Mary, cut her to the heart. Because she was just trying to be a good Jewish mom. Trying to take care of her son, who seems like has gone a little bit crazy. But Jesus is saying that life under God is not identified 
by relationships in a biological family. Some of you come from Christian homes. That doesn't guarantee you anything. God has no grandchildren, as they say, only children. Your father could have been in ministry, your mom could have been a pastor. You could have had grandpas who were evangelists. It doesn't matter. It's not a biological thing. It's about spirit and truth. You see, family relationships are not based on a choice. I mean, none of you got to choose your parents, right? And trust me, your parents are going, I wish I could have chosen my kids better. You can't even choose gender really. But membership in the family of God is based on choice. And the only requirement is obeying God. That's what Jesus says. Anyone who does God's will, does God's will. What is God's will? That we believe on him whom he has sent, Jesus Christ, his son. And the weird thing here is that sometimes your family can look just like your enemy or close. Family said he was crazy. Religious leaders, his enemies, said he had a demon. How close together are those? When I first came to Christ as an 18-year-old fresh out of high school, my family did not understand what happened. I barely understood what happened. And so I went home and I started talking about Jesus, the personal relationship stuff, you know, I pushed hard. I might have pushed too hard. Remember one Christmas, there was this book I found in the Christian bookstore by a guy named Keith Miller. It was called A Taste of New Wine. We talked about new wine and old wineskins a couple weeks ago, right? So it was about spiritual stuff. Those are my only presents for my mom and dad. This year I got them each a copy. Wrapped him up, gave him to him. This is after a long series of holy wars that we had had. Uh, and so <laughs> they open up their Christmas presents. They look at them. They're excited. I couldn't believe it. They were excited. Oh, Mike, this is great. We've been thinking about getting into wine tasting, and this is really wonderful. <laughs> Imagine the disappointment when they realized it was yet another attempt for Mike to try and force his beliefs down their throats. Now, I, I don't want to paint myself as some great persecuted saint because, I mean, honestly, I mean, it was tough for my parents. I was young, I was zealous, I was talkative. I never let them alone about this whole Jesus religion thing. They've been going to church all their lives. And uh, I was, you know, their 18, 19-year-old son. 
who wasn't doing his chores, was always asking for money because I was always broke, who wasn't treating his brothers and sisters very well. So in their defense, I wasn't ever being persecuted solely for righteousness sake, you know. Remember one time my mom said to me, well, forget what she said to me. I was trying to tell her something about Jesus coming back. And she said to me, she goes, and this kind of threw me for a loop. She goes, so Mike, you're telling me that Jesus could come back at any time. I go, right, Mom. Yeah, any time. He could come. And you believe this to be true? She goes. And I said, yes, I believe it to be true. And she goes, I believe it too. Go clean your room. Like, what difference does it make? Go clean your room. You haven't cleaned it. Do your chores. The bathroom downstairs, the guest bathroom is still a mess. You haven't done it. But sometimes the members of your own household are the hardest to talk to about your faith because they see your feet of clay, so to speak. They see how not like Christ you are. Can you imagine what it was like in Jesus' household when you knew he was perfect? I mean, honestly, he had to be the big brother all the other brothers hated. I've said this before, but because their whole life they're hearing things like, what do you mean you're not going to do your chores? Jesus always does his chores. Why can't you be more like Jesus? You would grow up to hate a big brother like that, wouldn't you? Honestly? My big brother, the perfect one, always does everything right. What a standard to be judged against. <laughs> it just had to be tough. And my own uh, interaction with my church <laughs> was kind of along the same lines. I was a new Christian full of zeal, full of excitement. And so I volunteered to teach Sunday school. Now, when you're a pastor or you're a Sunday school superintendent and there's somebody in your church who's volunteering to teach Sunday school, that person's gold, okay? You love that person. So I'm going, let me teach this high school Sunday school class. And so I'm a couple years into college, and we're going through the Gospels, right? It's awesome. Kids are learning about Jesus, asking questions. I'm trying to bust them out of their, you know, denominational thinking into thinking about Jesus as a real-life person. It was really great, and then some of the church ladies got wind of it. I didn't know about this. All I knew is that the priest called me into his office. And he said, Mike, you're causing division in the church. I go, me? Teaching a high school Sunday school class? I'm causing division in the church? Yep. You're not teaching orthodoxy. But Father, I'm teaching about Jesus. Isn't that orthodoxy? I'm not talking about the priest's vestments or the liturgy or comparative religions. I'm just talking about Jesus. I'm sorry, Mike, you're going to have to stop teaching the Sunday school class. And so I lost the class. You see, 
It happens even today. So what lessons are we to draw from this passage of Scripture? I think the first thing we don't want to do is we don't want to be like the chief priests and teachers of the law. We don't want to start labeling people. You start labeling anybody, and you're in trouble. You label somebody as evil, I think you yourself become evil. It's the first step. They're people. They're loved by Jesus. Murderers, rapists, prostitutes, robbers, Jesus' specialty. They do evil things, but they're not evil. I think that we should be very, very careful about slandering those who belong to Jesus as if they did not belong to Jesus and did not have the Holy Spirit. I like to poke fun at some of my brothers and sisters in the faith who are on TV and those high-numbered channels late at night. You know, the, the Christian TV people. I'm fascinated with those people. I really am. I think they really believe, most of them. I have no idea what it would be like to spend eternity with Benny Hinn. (laughs) Really. In heaven, I'm going to ask Pat Robertson what he was thinking. But would I ever say that these men are not lovers of Jesus and part of the kingdom? You won't hear that from me. I'm just glad that God's word is being preached. In a weird manner, yes, but still. I'm glad that God's word is being preached. And I think you should be careful, too, of slandering those, even if they're really, really different than us, who are proclaiming the name of Jesus. I mean, they may be greedy. They may concentrate on some things like the gifts more than the giver of the gifts. But that doesn't make them evil. And to call them evil is to have a step in the direction of becoming the Pharisees and teachers of the law in this story. So let's be very, very careful of that. I think something we can draw from this passage is that it's our job to become liberators of the prisoner of war camps, the spiritual prisoner of war camps that are all around us. We have friends that we work with, we go to school with, sometimes in our own families, who are in need of release, freedom from captivity. And the only way to release somebody from spiritual captivity 
is to have Jesus come in and tie up the strong man so the strong man's house can be looted. It takes prayer, folks. You have people that you love, that you want to bring into the kingdom of God, to be with you and be with Jesus for eternity. Start with some prayer. Ask Jesus to bind those things that are deceiving them. Those demonic forces that are whispering lies into their ears. Ask Jesus to bind those spirits that are deluding them and open their eyes to the truth because the doors to hell are locked from the inside. Your friend has got a choice. Sometimes he or she just doesn't know it. I think that... um, We need to think about the family of God more and what it means, here at Scum especially. That Jesus says we're supposed to be a family. Now, I know you don't always get along with your natural brothers and sisters. You don't always get along with your spiritual brothers and sisters either. It's part of being a family. You know, sometimes as a kid growing up in a great household, you feel like you're not getting everything you're due. It's the same way in the family of God. Sometimes your perceptions are, hey, come on, me. I need attention. It's just like a family. We have small groups that scum. If you're not a part of a small group, please become a part of a small group. You can't get your needs met on a Sunday night in a crowd of a couple hundred people. It's impossible to be known. I mean, if you were in the hospital, most of us wouldn't even know that you were there. But if you went to a small group every week, your absence would be noted. Maybe you would actually have a phone number of someone to call. And if you're in a Christian marriage, look... Christian marriage is not to make your home an island of intimacy. That's not the purpose of Christian marriage. But the purpose of Christian marriage is to make your household a household for for all, is to open yourself up. Married people invite single people over. Please do not just close yourself off. Single people, you know what? You're big now. You can host people at your house all by yourself. <laughs> if it, seriously, I mean, be hospitable. Scum is founded on hospitality. I mean, seriously, we're the most hospitable church for the most introverted, unfriendly people I know. That's who we are. So we've got this kind of bipolar existence that we just need to keep trying to work out. Sometimes 
as a pastor, you want to catch people doing something right. And so even though Scum, as I've always often said, is one of the most unfriendly churches in the city, I think that there are a number of people who are doing a great job at being hospitable and being the family of God. The brothers and sisters Jesus was talking about. These people right here. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers and my father. So I thought I'd ask a couple folks to come up here and um, talk about their experiences. So I'm going to ask Adam Skinner. Where are you? There. Come on over. Catch somebody doing something right, Adam. As a kid, I went to this big family reunion with, like, I don't know, 50 to 60, 70 of my family that I didn't really know. And it's easy to walk around in that and not have any idea who anybody is and not actually talk to anybody. But, you know, in your little family group, your nuclear family, if you will, that's hopefully that's where you know you belong. And that's kind of a good parallel to the whole what we do right now in the small groups thing. That was my experience. Um, started coming here back in 08, brand new to Denver, didn't know anybody, and uh, walked in here, well, you know, here was there, but in our old building, you know what it is, and uh, yeah, I was able to go there for a while without knowing anybody, maybe you're playing that game, try to graduate beyond, it gets better, um, got into a small group led by Mr. Jesse Heilman, where is he hiding, did he? Pray for Jesse's health, by the way. Um, he's not here, but uh, with Jesse Hyman and Ms. Anna Till over there, and we started a, yeah, I know, point, point, and a little woodworking small group, and it was held at Jesse's house, and he welcomed us into there, even though he had no idea who I was initially, and would have us over for breakfast and coffee, and then go out, and he would let us use his power tools. If that's not trust, I don't know what is. And I still have all my fingers, and I got to got to know these people, and going to be welcomed into somebody else's home like that. Like, that's the sort of ridiculous, extravagant hospitality that a few people here have, have really done well with. And that was how I got to know more people in the church. And now I look at Scum as, you know, if there was a reason that I might move to another city, this is the reason that I would stay instead. You know, and like Mike was saying, if you haven't gotten into a small group, please check them out. Like, there's a list back at the scoop. There's lots of stuff to get involved with. But, you know, get to know some family here because... It gets good. All right. Thanks. Paul Keene, where are you? All right. Thank you for pre-raising the mic stand. Um, so uh, I'm, I moved out to Denver from Athens, Georgia. I spent my whole life in Georgia, the previous 25 years. And uh, I got out to Denver... And said, people said, so why'd you move to Denver? And my answer was, and um, so uh, um, I spent about two years solid by myself. And I'm not talking like, you know, oh, you know, I felt alone. I had my friends, but I wasn't really connecting with them. I'm talking like literally by myself. My closest friends were in Longmont and Colorado Springs. Littleton a little bit, but that was still a 45-minute drive from where I was living. Um, so 
I started coming to Scum of the Earth, and um, well, I, I got to back up real quick. I was planning on moving back to Georgia in November. I was dead set, determined. I'm like, I'm going back to Georgia, and that's all there is about it. I felt like Samwise Gamgee, and he's like, all I really want to do is go back to the Shire. That's it. And um, my my family was excited. My sister was excited. Like, oh, good, he's coming home. And then I started coming here. And all of a sudden, I wasn't by myself anymore. I, you know, I'd spent nights on the phone to my sister crying, saying, like, I feel like I live on Mars. I'm all by myself out here. And um, just since December, people have said, come hang out with us. That <laughs> I'm crying because it hadn't happened in so long. <laughs> I'd just been desperately alone. And it was just so wonderful to finally have a place and people that I could be with after just being by myself for so long. And um, yesterday I was, I was um, on the phone. I was driving down I-70. I was talking with my mom. And I said, I think I'm going to stay in Denver indefinitely. And she's like, yeah, I kind of knew that would happen um, because I've been talking about you guys a lot. And... I, I know that breaks their heart. I know they want me back in Georgia. But um, I, I ain't leaving. <laughs> okay. Katie Daniel, come on up. Okay. Hello. Um, I have been thinking actually about this subject of, of family and faith a lot lately. So if I start going on, you can just cough. I won't, I won't take offense to it. Yeah, that'll be our cue. Um, so for me, the verse we looked at tonight is, is one that I, I feel, um, akin with, no pun intended, and just because my family isn't isn't very religious, and when I first became a Christian, it was it was more like I, I feel like a, a family. My definition of family is people that you feel very comfortable around, like you feel like you can be yourself around. And I remember uh, when I first started going to church. And I was living with my parents down in Colorado Springs then. And I was going to the, actually the Refuse, the a sister church of Scum. And I, I was like going out of the house to go to church. And my mom asked me where I was going. And I, I like it, it really crossed my mind to lie about where I was going and saying I was like going to a bar or something. But so then her daughter would be, you know, like a normal 20 something year old. But I was like, oh, I'm, go- I'm going to church. And then I, I didn't say anything else, just kind of like ran and scurried out. So needless to say, though, that, you know, it wasn't very comfortable. Um, and, I mean, I, I want to preface this with, like, I love my parents, and I have, I have faith that, you know, someday they'll know, know Jesus. But, um, but it is, it's hard because, to, to be honest, I, I feel so much like that. Um, like that Bible verse, just because I feel so much more comfortable with my church family. 
And um, so I have, a, I have another story that happened. That was like about three years ago. And then the other day, I, I got confronted with this idea I'd never thought of. Um, actually, I'm going to tell a story. Okay, so um, someone had told my boyfriend that he should probably like not be in a relationship with me because my family wasn't religious. And he is, he has a pretty good head on his shoulders, so he didn't listen to him, but he did tell me this idea. So all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like they're supposed to love me, but I, uh, they will love me like for my whole life, but I don't really feel that comfortable around them. And all of a sudden I, I got to this place of like, oh my gosh, like I don't have anyone who has to love me for my whole life, you know, that is also a Christian and that I feel comfortable around. And so I just like had this kind of like a crisis with it of just like, I feel like I felt like I was about to lose like everything or that I could possibly lose everything. Um, and like, cause to me, family is, is kind of everything. And like the people that I feel like are part of my family, like part of my church family, they don't have to have to love me. You know, it's a choice thing. So they could stop anytime they wanted. Um, and so I was talking, I was talking to my friends, two of my friends, we were out to dinner. Um, like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's so many people in here that I feel like are part of my church family. But I was talking to my friends, um, Kimberly, Claire, and Lurie. And I was telling them th- about this and my fears of, of just kind of losing everything and not having anything. And, um, and they were just like, Katie, like, we're gonna, we will always love you. Like, you can drop out of school right now. You can, you can do whatever you want, but we're always going to love you. And it was like at that moment that all these lies I believe was believing about these fears of being alone were just kind of washed away. And I was like, yeah, these people that love me right now, they're always going to love me. And I'm always going to feel comfortable around them. And so, yeah, so needless to say, I'm extremely thankful. Um, just, I mean, because we're, Mike was encouraging people to, to join small groups. So um, that was how I got to know the people, these people that I know. Like first was book club at Anatel's house. And then a very special small group that I was a part of that I just um, like got to feel um, accepted by people. I want you to cough. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right. That was funny. All right, now we're going to do something that the family of God has been doing for a couple thousand years now. Not hand the m- music stand down to the band. wasn't talking about that, but talking about communion. Jesus began a new family on the earth. He 
knew that the religious authorities were going to crucify him. He saw that coming. But that was part of the plan. And so he gathered his group of followers to have one last family meal. And he took a piece of bread, which is the staple of meals in almost every country, every tribe of people, and said, this piece of bread that we're going to eat together, from now on, it's not just a piece of bread. From now on, this is my body broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And this cup of wine, you thought that it had meaning before, but I'm going to change the meaning just a little bit. This cup is now the cup of my blood shed for you. So whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do it in memory of me. And so every week at Scum of the Earth, we have this meal, right? We eat together, kind of like families eat together. It's part of the reason that we eat together is because we know we're really bad at this family thing. We thought if we put the meal in the middle of the service and gave it significance, that it would be better. But communion's a special kind of a meal made for those who've called on Jesus' name. And so if you have called on the name of Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you consider yourself part of his family, then you are welcome to have the special meal, communion with us right now. As come of the earth, we don't usually uh, pass out little wafers and have little cups. We have a loaf of bread, uh, and you'll tear some bread off, and you'll dip it into the cup and eat it that way, okay? So I can have the uh, communion folks come on out. And Deva, if you could lead us in worship, that'd be great.